Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast today on the pod. Undermining Democracy, investigative reporter Sam Cooper and former MP Kenny Chu join us as we look at China's far-reaching and growing covert operation in Canada. Plus, the shelves are bare. Why is Canada still facing a shortage of kids' pain medication? Plus, having a tough time making ends meet with the challenges of inflation, maybe it's time you took Christia Freeland's advice and cancel your Disney Plus subscription. Yes, she really did say that. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Joining me now is Global BC legislative reporter Richard Zussman. Talk a little bit about what we can expect and what these elected officials should expect in the weeks and months ahead. Richard, welcome. They've let me out of the legislature, Jazz, and I am sitting here. I can see you in person. I am in downtown Vancouver. So I get to see these problems that Ken Sim is facing (laughs) firsthand. The traffic wasn't so bad, though, on the way in. So maybe he's going to get a break on this traffic thing. Who knows? It's actually nice to talk to a human being that I can actually see rather than over the phone line. So maybe we are actually starting a (laughs) post-COVID moment here at CKNW. We're hopefully soon going to have people in studio again where you can actually look at them and talk to them. So it's great to have you uh, join us today in the studio. So let's touch on some of these things. Um, A little bit about uh, Ken Sim talked a little bit about probably the biggest challenge before the city, a challenge the city's never seen before, which is just the mental health and addiction and public safety. It's all interconnected. Uh, What do you think we can see in regards to help for cities particularly from the provincial government? I think a lot is coming. What it looks like is still unclear. So there's a lot of things that need to unfold. Just today and tomorrow, and the reason I'm here is the health ministers from across the country are meeting, and the Mm -hmm. mental health ministers for the provinces that have them are also here. And this is one of the big priorities, is figuring out how to properly fund treatment centers, how to ensure that the resources are given to those that need it to help alleviate pressure on the justice system, on the criminal system, because we're often seeing a strong connection between repeat offenders and mental health issues. And then the next wave of this is Premier David Eby. So we know he's being sworn in now in a little bit less than two weeks' time. And one of the priorities that he has before him uh, is the issue of public safety. He managed the system when he was Attorney General alongside Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth. And we know that he has some unique ideas on this. One of them uh, is involuntary treatment for uh, those that have mental health issues uh, that could potentially be connected to repeat offenses. We'll see how quickly he moves on that because that would be a substantial policy shift and one that could make a difference. And then we'll see what sort of support there is financially, potentially for those mental health nurses that Ken Sim has promised. There's some confusion in Victoria about exactly how Ken Sim is going to implement that. Will it be done through the health authority? Will it be done through the Vancouver Police Department, there are still questions that need answering there. So those two things provincially, those tools are going to have to be pulled. And I'm really curious to see when Ken Sims first sort of um, meeting with David Eby in terms of, you know, agenda, what we need for the city will be because there are huge issues that Vancouver needs help from Victoria on to implement a lot of these big promises he has. Sometimes in politics, timing uh, is more important than anything. I mean, Mr. Sim actually has a premier and MLA who lives in Vancouver. It's his right? constituent. It's his constituent, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and uh, th- that's, uh, I think, going to play a significant role because uh, I think the squaring in for premier, soon to be premier Eby, is in Vancouver, not in Victoria. Yes, and and... I don't know how you know that, but (laughs) uh, they are working on the logistics of that now. And I think that largely has to do with space, but it is also going to be an event that will be symbolic. 
Mm. He is British Columbia's premier. But it is a marked shift from what we saw from a premier who lived in the southern part of Vancouver Island, uh, who would commute into the office every day and back home to see his kids, to a premier now who is based here with his family in Vancouver. And he understands on a day-to-day basis those challenges, right? Mm-hmm. Kids in childcare, moving around through public transit, seeing the face of uh, public safety and crime issues that you, you wouldn't see if you don't live in the city. And all of that is going to be, as you play, advantageous around timing. Do you think the discussion in this region, I, I certainly hear it from our callers, that we may go to a, I'm not going back to the same system, but could we see a, a revival or a conversation of a, a, of a Riverview or reopening a Riverview or something similar to a Riverview? It doesn't seem like it's something David Eby is interested in. But it will be part of the conversation because Kevin Falcon has made it part of the conversation. The B.C. Liberal leader has said this is a priority of his. He would like to see the reopening of Riverview, the sort of mass uh, facility that brings people in and out to receive the mental health treatment they need. When David Eby talks about involuntary confinement, mm-hmm. he is not thinking about a Riverview situation. He is looking at one-off situations where someone who is clearly having mental health issues ends up in the justice system and getting them the treatment they need rather than putting them in jail for 24 hours, allowing them to get bail only to be released and then 24 hours later arrested again. It's a different type of conversation and one that we're going to have a lot of over the next few years as we lead up to that fall of 2024 election, if we get to that point. Uh, the issue of housing, and we can touch a little bit a little bit on this after the news break as well, but um, Mr. Eby has a significant housing plan. We've talked about it uh, during the, the leadership campaign. How quickly do you think he can implement some of those things that he's talking about? My understanding is they're working on the legislation now. And when David Eby comes back to the House in Victoria uh, in two weeks from now, from today, he's going to want to make a splash. And I think the expectation is the legislation around housing will be the first thing on the table. And what that looks like, it's unclear. Will it be the flipping tax? Will it be the changes to municipal rules around zoning? Will it be the changes to strata? Will it be at all? I know they're working on it now. It's complicated, as you know, to work through legislation, to have the right language, all of that. But it's something that he wants to do in his first 100 days, and he needs in some parts legislation to do it. And he wants to make a splash and show that housing is his big priority uh, across the province, but especially where we're really seeing the pressures here in Metro Vancouver. If you're just joining us, we were speaking to Global BC's legislative reporter, Richard Zussman. We were talking about some of the issues before Metro Vancouver mayors, including uh, uh, transportation issues. We've got uh, housing challenges, mental health and addiction, of course. Um, but what we're also seeing is, of course, a challenge to our health care system. In fact, uh, the prime minister of this country, Justin Trudeau, says he, he supports the idea of investing more in health care. But he says Canadians want to see results and an improved system. Trudeau made those comments earlier today in Montreal and uh, there are two days of meetings here in Vancouver Canada's health ministers in fact this is the first time they've met uh, since 2018 Richard uh, has been covering some of their uh, conferences well Richard uh, your thoughts on this uh, are the concerns pretty much the same across this country in regards to access shortage of staff frustrations Canadians are having with the system yeah staffing is the number one issue we're seeing that everywhere and I asked health minister Adrian Dix the BC health minister is chairing the meetings about whether there was a conversation and commitment around not poaching workers from other parts of the country because 
As we move forward here, it looks like, as you mentioned, Ottawa's willing to pony up some extra cash. They put conditions on that today, though. They would like to see additional data from the provinces around healthcare uh, resources and about uh, healthcare outcomes. Uh, they would also like to see uh, some other data around managing the sector. Uh, if that comes, more money will flow to the provinces. If the provinces have access to more money for healthcare, one of the things they logically could do is offer higher pay to enter the workforce. So you're either keeping uh, nurses and doctors and others in the system in the system rather than leaving, mm-hmm. or you're potentially trying to lure back others who may have left. If we see that, we may have a, a race to the moon sort of thing where every province is trying to pay more to encourage workers. And Minister Dick said one of the things the provinces have agreed to do is is not to try to actively go and get uh, resources from other parts of the country, but to work with Ottawa to improve accreditation for foreign workers, mm-hmm. as well as try to get the number of uh, workers up in terms of uh, programs, you know, so through the medical schools, nursing programs, but that takes time mm-hmm. and the crisis is now. Yeah. So we know that HR is the big issue. We also know that there are diagnostic testing issues on all fronts. Uh, we've seen uh, some problems with uh, cancer uh, treatment and diagnosis in a lot of places. That's still an issue. And those are the big priority groups about where the provinces would like to see the money go if it's there on the table. Tomorrow, the, the premier's meet face-to-face with the federal minister, and we will find out by the end of the day if they have at least an agreement for a formal meeting where the prime minister and the premiers can sit down to finally hash out a conversation on money. Are, are the other provinces um, happy w- with our deal with the doctors or the government's yeah. deal with the doctors? Because it's a significant pay increase. I'm, I'm not complaining about that. But other premiers are going to look at that. Other health ministers are going, wait a minute here. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to be pointing at BC when I got to deal, when they got to deal with them. I got to assume some ministers health ministers probably aren't happy. So numbers I looked at has BC and Ontario around tied now with how much we pay doctors. And after this new deal comes into effect in the new year, we jump up an average of $70,000 a year on top of what they're being made now. So all of a sudden you're looking as a family doctor in another jurisdiction and saying, well, I've always heard British Columbia is beautiful. (laughs) Maybe I want to try it out myself. So it's a strain that provinces are feeling, but you know, everybody's facing these same issues. So I expect that if the model is the right model, uh, then other provinces are going to adopt something similar and then go to Ottawa and say, we need the financial help to cover this. Okay. Now let's touch on um, issues I think you and I um, both noticed this weekend. My son was sick uh, uh, and my wife was mentioning to me uh, at a local Walmart near our place that uh, um, there was a shortage of pain medication for kids. Uh, You notice the same thing in Victoria? Yeah, and it's been going on for a while in Victoria, but it's so acute now that it seems like no matter where you go, you can find it. So I asked Minister Dix about this today as well, because it is a huge issue. And, and, And largely this is blamed on the supply chains, but it's also applying all sorts of other pressure to our system. So many may have noticed that over the weekend, there were huge waits at Children's Hospital. Uh, Parents have kids who are in pain, They don't have medication at home to treat it, so they go to the hospital, and it puts pressure on a system that's already under pressure. And one of the things that Minister Dick said to me is, wait for tomorrow, because that will be part of the conversation with the federal minister, that could we go to a model where children medication painkillers have to be prescribed? So families can't get it off the shelf so that the pharmacists can regulate how much a family can have. We'll see. I don't think we're going to go that far. Other provinces have talked about that. But I think there's going to be something 
from Ottawa tomorrow to help address it because it's concerning. Yeah. Like, like you went through it, you, you notice it. I, I was even flabbergasted by the pharmacy I went to in Victoria that cold and flu medication for adults was half out. Like uh, flu shots were out. Like this is a pressure point where if we don't have these basic tools we know work, we know vaccines work, we know painkillers help work, ease the pressure, um, then we're going to have a system that continues to really feel it, I don't want to say crumble, but we're at a point now where it just feels like the basic things in the system just aren't working the way that they're supposed to. Well, the system, I would argue, has always been, and whether BC Liberal, NDP, whoever's in power, you've always run it at 90 95% capacity, sure. and then you throw in a global pa- pandemic and supply chain issues. Yeah. This is the recovery, and it, it, show, it actually highlights the system has always been in trouble but it's never had a pandemic challenge again. Now we're trying to recover from it, and the problems are glaring. Yeah, and, right? and I think fixing a problem on a go, as you know, is nearly impossible. So these are problems, as you mentioned, have compounded themselves over years and years and years. I remember when we lived in Vancouver, we would wait hours to get into Children's Hospital on a mm-hmm. weekend. There's always been pressure. But when you have things that compound themselves even further, you know, supply chains, can't get the medication, now you send your kid to hospital, you put even more pressure on a system that can't handle any more pressure. And we're just starting this, or the respiratory yeah. season, the problems, right? I mean, this is early November. Wait till we get to December, right? This is... We haven't even seen a lot of flu. If any cases of the flu in British Columbia, we haven't seen that big run of respiratory illnesses that rip through schools. You know, we're already hearing anecdotally tales of schools from across Metro Vancouver in the province that, you know, kids, teachers can't come in because they're sick. It could be a tough, you know, late fall into winter. Yeah, absolutely. Richard, thank you so much, my friend. It's good to be here. Good Thanks, to Jess. see you, sir. <laughs> good, good to see to you. See you in chat. <laughs> we hope we can do this uh, very soon and, and a lot more. Thanks. Thanks once again. Well, a new report from Global News says that members of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service recently warned Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his government of China's ongoing influence and espionage campaign in Canada. The information uh, leaked to investigative reporter Sam Cooper shows a much wider and far-ranging campaign, which includes funding a clandestine network of at least 11 federal candidates running in the 2019 election. Joining me now to discuss the report is Global News investigative reporter Sam Cooper. Sam, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a far-reaching uh, report that you have on the Global News website today talking about uh, China's uh, clandestine um, intelligence operation and how vast it is. I guess that's my probably my first question is this influence campaign, you know, talking to your sources, uh, and you've covered a lot of this already, but with this report, were you at all surprised at how organized and far-ranging it truly was in regards to China's influence campaign in Canada? Well, Jazz, you're right. I've been following what's called China's United Front Foreign Influence Operations for a while, uh, piece by piece, connecting some dots. I connected it to, uh, you know, casino operations, strangely. But I was, uh, really, I was stunned with this new information that I've been chasing for this year, uh, sources deep inside uh, various pockets of Canada's government uh, have been sharing some information with me that has been briefed up right to the top of our government, uh, we're told, up to Prime Minister Trudeau in 2022. And stunning allegations. I had never before, Jazz, seen an allegation that Chinese officials in a consulate in Canada are covertly funding federal election candidates. And uh, we we don't have... Uh, 
identities of the alleged network. Uh, I'm working on this, but what I can tell you, Jazz, is it's not just one party. Uh, the sources say that uh, these uh, Beijing influence operations reach into both of our federal parties, at least. That's the Liberals and the Conservatives. Another thing that blew my mind, again, this all ties to what's known as the United Front Work Department. This is Beijing's foreign influence operation. And as you know, they're uh, connected to what's called Confucius Institutes, state uh, culture educational schools from China. And uh, this intelligence alleged that the consulate in Toronto transferred one million to proxy community groups to organize fake protests trying to uh, re keep the relationship with the Toronto District School Board and these Confucius Institutes. So this kind of information just, uh, it really is mind-blowing that when we're not talking about a conspiracy theory, this is conspiracy fact that the United Front has many parallel operations targeting all areas of Canada politics and society, really, even, even down to infiltrating harassing, surveilling, attacking diaspora community members uh, in Vancouver and in Toronto. I'm of a certain vintage, and, and if you look back at the history of, of this country from 1867 onwards, uh, has there been a foreign nation that has run such a, a deep and well-organized influence campaign like China, like I, I know other countries have done so. All countries spy, quite frankly. I think that let's start with that simple reality. But I, I cannot think in our history where there's been such a, an overt and organized campaign like China's is here in Canada. You're exactly right. This is another thing that year by year, as I follow this story, I'm, uh, I'm constantly, you know, shocked but not surprised. Uh, People know that Russia, of course, historically has very aggressive and sophisticated espionage networks worldwide. But truly, China in the past 20 years really has surpassed by far Russia in terms of their foreign influence game. It's really about uh, surrounding politicians in Western nations, surrounding powerful business persons. And, and let's get this out of the way right away. This is not about, uh, uh, you know, simply the Chinese ethnic communities. United Front operations are targeting everyone, no matter what community they come from. Uh, they, they try to subvert and uh, co-opt through money and through uh, other, other of the oldest tricks in the espionage book. But absolutely, the United Front foreign influence operations, another thing my investigation found was thesis has reported up high that no nation does more foreign influence than China, and the current threat level started really in 2015 when Chinese President Xi Jinping elevated this United Front network, which uh, is literally, uh, he calls it, the China's magic weapon for foreign influence. Let's start, touch a little bit about the, on, on the issue of money. Uh, this is uh, happening across the country, but Toronto and Vancouver, am, am I correct, are, are sort of the ground zero in, in, in this covert operation? Yes, that's right. Uh, certainly, the, the, my story uh, from Breaking Story Today focuses much on Ottawa and Toronto networks, but it's absolutely, it's known at least to me, myself and, and the sources that I talk to, that China's centers of operations really in North America for saturation of United Front and espionage would be Toronto and, and Vancouver. 
and it, it indeed does connect into uh, real estate investment. Uh, you know, Vancouver, of course, we know how big a story the, the, the real estate and the casinos are. But Toronto, remember, is the industrial heartland, all the factories. Uh, mm-hmm. So the, there's definitely uh, high tech is a major focus. So that that's what this money influence operation is really about. It's about influencing key industries and you know jazz that politicians want to bring jobs to their uh, home writings and what's a better way to get at politicians than to put some pressure on those jobs how do we counteract this particularly when you, even at community groups i remember when i was uh, in public office you get invited to, to events uh, you have lots of volunteers there and their local people very much in, engaged in their local uh, community uh, engaged in the local uh, volunteer groups Many of them, one would argue, are unwitting. They don't realize the bigger game here. Even elected officials get involved, invited to these events. Uh, I'm not sure they have a a clue as to the broader propaganda uh, purpose uh, that these events sometimes are used for. How do we, in your mind, get to a point where we actually can push back on some of this? Well, you're you're exactly right about what would seem to be some pretty tame, you know, uh, networking at events that can turn in very quickly into intelligence operations targeting Canadian politicians. So first of all, we need to up our uh, knowledge game on how the United Front works. It can be very, you know, uh, awkward to turn down invitations, but this is the way that uh, politicians can be hooked. And really, Jazz, there's a very simple answer to your question. Something, again, that stunned me, even though I've been chasing this story for a while, Canada is essentially a wide-open game for foreign interference. We, on, on counter-espionage and counter-terrorism, Canada does have strong laws for CSIS to, to uh, mitigate th- those activities, but we really, we cannot prosecute foreign interference and influence. As, as funny as that sounds to say, we can't. Uh, you know, we're following this police station or covert Chinese police station story, and there are people, my sources say, that it's pretty much legal for, for China to be, you know, placing agents in Canada and pressuring community members, because unlike Australia, United Kingdom uh, has new national security laws. United States, of course, the FBI counterintelligence is is bringing new cases daily on these interference operations. Canada doesn't have the laws. Uh, one of the persons that was targeted uh, by the CCP in my story named Kenny Chu, he proposed a foreign agent's registry in 2021. And surprise, he was attacked by these very same election interference networks run by the Chinese Communist Party, is what my sources report in relation to this story breaking today. Just joining us, we're speaking to Sam Cooper, Global News investigative reporter based in Ottawa. Uh, he has written an amazing story today talking about China's uh, covert funding of the 2019 election or parts, uh, or at least funding uh, candidates. He also talks about the length and breadth of this um, uh, this uh, operation as well. Uh, now, prior to the break, uh, Sam, you talked a little bit about um, Ken Chu, the former Conservative MP out of Richmond. He will be a guest on this show um, later today at 5 o'clock. Um, uh, let's touch on that a little bit. Uh, you know, when people hear about influencing countries trying to sort of build influence in, a, in, in another nation, and that doesn't surprise them. But when they're involved directly in trying to uh, get MPs elected or defeat MPs, it's an incredible concern. In this case, what do you think we need to do moving forward as a country to deal with this in a meaningful way? You brought Australia up as an example. Is that where we should be looking, countries like that? 
That, that's absolutely the answer. And, and what's, what's more, we already have uh, recommendations sitting in front of uh, uh, Justin Trudeau's government. These come from the special panel of national security uh, uh, parliamentarians. They've recommended Australia as an exemplar. Uh, Australia was facing, you know, the very same level of threat that Canada is today, several years ago, and Australia put in those foreign uh, influence registry laws so that you cannot be uh, working undercover for uh, countries such as Iran, uh, China, Russia, getting paid and going against the interests of your country. In Australia, you can't do that anymore. You need to disclose your interests openly. And uh, if you don't, you're going to jail. But if the case in Canada is you can be working under under the cover of uh, any any amount of layers of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, espionage or United Front activity for China, and it's not illegal. So it's very simple. Uh, we have the recommendations. This panel of parliamentarians came out weeks ago and, and urged Prime Minister Trudeau and his government to respond to their call for a new counterintelligence framework. So that's step one. Again, I've said that uh, upping the knowledge game of civil society in Canada is, is very important. Uh, if, 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 as you say, and I agree, many politicians would not know the risks surrounding, you know, some of this activity, certainly the, the average uh, Canadian uh, reader and listener uh, needs to be more educated as well, because it's uh, at the end of the day, they will be the ones that make this an important election issue. And truly, uh, Jazz, I think when you talk to Kenny, Mr. Chu, his point will be uh, the CCP sees blood in the water from the last two elections and this activity, we can guarantee it will increase next federal election. And if Canada doesn't have new laws in place, it's truly a, a, a fearful result that we're facing. Yeah, I mean, I think my time in public office uh, and having lived and worked in China, I can tell you the naivete, I think, of public officials, doesn't matter what party, I don't think these people, elected officials fully see the threat that China is uh, in regards to uh, our, our democracy. And I guess that, that's, that, that leads to my final question. When you look at cheap investment or attracting investment for our companies, uh, many companies look towards China, or natural resource industries specifically. I know recently the, the federal government asked three companies, Chinese-owned companies, to disinvest from uh, three junior mining firms. And when I heard that, I thought, well, Canada's finally developing a spine, perhaps. Uh, but I, isn't this a bigger issue, even uh, culturally for us, that for literally decades now, our elected officials federally, our business community, the elites have said, invest in China, invest in China, trade missions, all those types of things, that we're going to change China slowly. And what's actually happened is China has changed us. And it's almost like a wake-up call after nearly three decades of thinking in one way, we actually have to do a 180-degree turn now and say, wait a minute, uh, this is not how the world, world is working. This is what China is doing. We actually have to have a fundamental strategy st spanning through all our federal ministries, provincial ministries, different departments, our business, community, labor, whatever it may be. There has to be a full, ar fully arching China strategy, which I don't think we've had ever. I, I couldn't agree more with any every word that you say is correct. Uh, look, for... For 30 years, uh, as you say, the elites in Canada have been saying we need to be in the game with China. We need to diversify. We can't be, uh, you know, even though we, we have our, our cousin or brother south of the border, we can't just let them dictate the game to us. 
But uh, look, it's exactly true. The smartest business persons in the world have been traveling to China, and uh, the, the newest and best research, research shows that at a high level, Chinese intelligence operations were welcoming these business persons, and at the same time, these people were being unwittingly taken into that, what is called, quote-unquote, the lie of China's peaceful rise. And so uh, you're right, the ship needs to turn on a dime now, and it's very, very difficult to do that. But, uh, uh, you know, we, it's a new geopolitical reality we're facing when we see what uh, is happening in Ukraine, what could happen in Taiwan. I think there's a lot of uh, shifting in business networks that is happening at, at some level, being driven south of the border, but will need to start happening much more quickly in Canada. Well, my friend, always uh, great to chat with you. Time flies by. I recommend uh, our readers uh, uh, log on to Global News and take a look at Sam Cooper's article today, a fabulous article and, and a reminder for all of us in Canada to wake up to the threats and realities that uh, China poses. Sam, thanks for your time again, my friend. Thanks, Jeff. We were having a good weekend. Uh, I certainly did. Lots of time with family. Um, took my son to basketball, two of his basketball games. and Everything was going well. Uh, uh, looking forward to football on Sunday, of course. And then, of course, uh, we had our finance minister, Christia Freeland, um, you know, provide some advice to Canadians who are having a tough time making ends meet with uh, high inflation, obviously cost of living. Uh, here's what she said in regards to what they're doing at the Freeland home uh, to uh, save a few dollars in these difficult times. I personally, as a mother and wife, look carefully at my credit card bill once a month. And last Sunday, I said to the kids, you're older now, you don't want to watch Disney anymore. Let's cut that Disney Plus subscription. So we cut it. It's only $13.99 a month that we're saving. But every little bit helps. And I think every mother in Canada is doing that right now. Yeah, that's somehow going to help you deal with uh, average rents for a one-bedroom in Vancouver nearing $2,500 a month. Interest rates, of course, are rising significantly. We expect another interest rate increase uh, in December, perhaps not as aggressive as what we've seen over the last few months, but there is another interest rate increase coming and potentially more in earlier in the year before things calm down. So a significant challenge when it comes to uh, uh, making ends meet for all Canadians, but particularly those of us who live in Metro Vancouver, Southern Vancouver Island. It's tough everywhere. Uh, joining me now is our producer, Stephen Chang. Stephen and I were talking about this earlier today. What were your thoughts when you, when you heard the comments, Stephen? <laughs> jazz, jazz, jazz. Miss um, Freeland just does not have the best choice of words to describe um, how she's budgeting. I don't think this is helping anybody uh, consider what to kind of cut costs in because $13.99 is not going to make a big difference when you're paying over $2,500 for rent per month. No, exactly. It, it almost seems like uh, they're completely out of touch. Now, there's been, you know, we had uh, Brian Lilly on, a columnist from the Toronto Sun, uh, trying to find out, you know, who was staying in the hotel where they paid $6,000 a night uh, during the Queen's funeral. No one has said who uh, stayed, but obviously that's what they were paying. Uh, the President of the United States stayed at the uh, American Embassy to save money. For t- uh, taxpayers, so when you hear comments like this, I just uh, I just am shocked because it sounds completely and unequivocally out of touch. I was just looking at some basic numbers. Now get this, Stephen: basic salary for a member of parliament is one hundred eighty nine thousand seven hundred two. So one hundred eighty nine thousand uh, dollars. So just under two hundred thousand ministers. 
like Ms. Freeland, uh, get extra uh, because uh, there's an extra workload, obviously, when you're a minister. It's $280,000 per year. 280000 Oh, my God. So, <laughs> uh, the average family income, I think, in the city is about seventy. I have to check that. But I think it's around seventy. So $280,000. Now, that in itself uh, would anger most British Columbians, most Canadians when you hear that. But I want to throw you another stat for you. Every April 1st, there is a cost of living increase for those very MPs. Automatic. So they, uh, they, they, they look at the consumer price index, look at everything, and uh, on April 1st, there is a, usually an inflationary increase. Right. So since COVID began, so the last two years, uh, MPs have had a raise of $10,802 during COVID. So people have lost work. MPs are still working. They haven't missed a paycheck, but they still have their built-in raises, $10,802. Cabinet ministers, $15,865. Just think about that for a second. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm not saying uh, there, the, no government is ever perfect, but if there ever was a tone-deaf comment, to be very blunt, well, would be that one. You know, the other thing is, uh, you know, my son's uh, older now, but you've got young kids and you've got a busy life. COVID hasn't been easy. Disney Plus is exactly what parents actually need for, for their kids, right? Well, Jazz, I personally don't have kids, so I can't relate to that yeah. statement. But, however, as a grown man-child myself, Disney Plus is one of the best streaming platforms I think that are on there right now. They've added more since they started like years ago. Like, if you're a fan of any franchise and you want to look back to like anything Marvel-related, they have the cartoons that you watched as a kid. They had Star Wars projects that you watched as a kid or when you were growing up. And even outside of those... Disney shows and other movies that are, you know, for adults as well. Like they have some horror movies up there that are classics like 28 Days Later is on Disney Plus because it's quote unquote Hulu in Canada. And there's other sitcoms, National Geographic. There's so much you can do with Disney Plus. So for Miss Freeland to scrap her $13.99 subscription on Disney Plus is ridiculous. And I have some numbers for you too as well, Jazz. Uh-huh. So you say these ministers make six figures. Netflix, $9.99 a month with the basic... Um, basic tier yeah prime 9.99 a month disney and free, plus and free shipping and free and free shipping <laughs> and disney plus 11.99 a month so how how do these costs if by cutting this one little thing according to miss freeland will make us be able to afford more in the city that's but when there's gas well, prices rising food prices are rising it's ridiculous yeah i mean i think it's absurd i mean like i said i'm not saying that parents are using disney plus as a babysitter i'm just saying it's there when you need it and any parent uh, would know what I'm saying every once in a while, especially in the middle of COVID. Quarterback Nathan Rourke and the BC Lions are through to the second round of the CFL playoffs after downing the Calgary Stampeders 30-16 in the Western Division semifinal on Sunday. Uh, making his first postseason appearance, Rourke threw for 321 yards, two touchdowns, and connecting on 22 of 30 attempts. Sunday's BC Line game uh, promises, well, was one of the most well-attended home games uh, in a decade and really says a lot about where the team is at at this moment and where it could potentially go. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the game on the weekend, but also BC Lions and CFL's future here in Vancouver is Jay Janner, Global BC Sports Anchor. Hi, Jay. Jazz, good evening, my friend, and it was a special afternoon at BC Place yesterday. 
to watch the Lions beat the Calgary Stampeders in the Western semifinal, their first home playoff victory since 2016. And i got to tell you, Jazz, being in that building, it was electric, and everyone who was there, Jazz, was there to cheer on the BC Lions. And I was amazed at how many Lions jerseys were in the stands. Uh, I was reading some of your uh, Twitter comments on Sunday. I mean, what do you think caused this? Is it a question of the new owner? Is it just because um, it was a, we haven't had a playoff game in a while? What, do you th- what, what has gotten us to this point this weekend? Well, first and foremost, winning. I mean, we like to think that we're a sports town, Jazz, but we really, for the most part, <laughs> I like to believe that we're an event city. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what yesterday showed us was that you've got a football team with arguably the best quarterback in the, in the CFL. I know Zach Kolaris is, is, is nominated for the Most Outstanding Player Award, but if Nathan Rourke didn't get hurt, he would have won the, won the uh, award in a landslide. So we've got a winning football team for the first time in a long time. But I think you have to factor a lot of the Lions' success this season on new ownership and what Amar Doman has meant to this organization, what he will mean to the CFL moving forward. Because for their home opener, Jazz, and I talked to Amar about this yesterday when we had him on our noon show, their home opener, they had 34,000 fans. But the majority of people who I think went to that game uh, went to see One Republic, and oh, there was a football game on the side. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, they had 30,000 people there who were there for one reason and one reason only, and that was to watch the Lions play a football game. And for, for what transpired from the beginning of the year to the end has a lot to do with what started at the top and has trickled its way all the way down to what we see on the field, and that's Amar Doman. What drives him? I mean, uh, I, when he first, first bought the team, I thought, wow, that's a guy who must love football. What, what, what drives him to wanting to buy the team, number one, and, and what makes him think he can resuscitate interest in the CFL in such a major way in a city like this? I think, he, I think you know, he, he's, he's a father, he's a parent, mm-hmm. uh, he's a sports fan, and those of, uh, of your listeners right now and, and our viewers who are driving home right now listening to this, they're probably nodding along knowing what the power of sport means to their community, what it means to their family, what it means to their kids. And Amar Doman has the wherewithal, the financial wherewithal, to get this organization back on the, on the right path. And, and for, for, for this organization, it's grassroots jazz. I mean, you look what they did um, leading into the weekend. They said, you know what, we're going to get buses coming from the island for those of you who, who want to come watch the football game. Well, you had people in the interior saying, what about us? You forgot about us. So what do the lines do? They have buses coming in from the interior. We haven't seen that before. But I'll take it back to the summertime, jazz. I was up mm-hmm. at Hollyburn covering the Audlin Brown Vancouver Open Tennis Tournament. Yeah. And I'm watching the players, but I'm watching ball boys that, and ball girls who have Lions T-shirts on, Lions colored T-shirts. It's a totally different sporting event, but it's getting brand awareness out there with the people who matter the most, and that's the youngsters. Well, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. I, uh, I was talking to my son a while back, and he's more interested in going to the, uh, he likes, loves football, but really interested in going to Lions games, and I've never heard that from him. And it's not just because of this year, but he loves the sport, but the fact that they're much more engaged in the community. And I think you raised a very good point uh, in regards to the, that transportation for uh, fans from Vancouver Island, the uh, the interior, the valley. That That's like the magic touch. You can pay for, the, for fans to come in from Kamloops and some of these other communities that is so significant well when i was chatting with amar yesterday and and i mentioned just how impressed i was with with them reaching out to all of our communities and he said jay we're not the vancouver lions we're the bc lions and when you look at our province be it on the island or you go all the way up to the north 
we have sports fans throughout this province, and you know what? When they hear about the BC Lions, when they see the BC Lions doing well, they're watching it at home. They're talking about it at home. And you know, now the Lions are a game away from playing for the Grey Cup. We haven't seen that happen in, in, in quite some time. There's excitement, Jazz, and you could feel that excitement inside BC Place. Like, it was electric, and the only thing that I was disappointed with was Mother Nature because if it wasn't for the snow that was falling across the Lower Mainland, I bet you could have probably had a walk-up crowd maybe of another 5,000 fans because the excitement level was there and the street party outside, Jazz. You know, you have Sarah McLaughlin singing the national anthem. You know, that's something that the Lions did. You know, you had Stephen Page, formerly the Bare Naked Ladies, doing a halftime show. That's another add-on that the Lions put in there for the total entertainment package. So they get it. But this, you know, this this is investment. You need investment to do that. And Armar Dolman is writing checks all season long, and will continue to do that to create that environment for sports fans. Uh, talking about the CFL for a moment, what's the chance of an, an expansion team in Atlantic Canada? Very good, Jazz. Um, but here's my concern when we talk about expansion. And 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 I'll tell you, I was out in in the Maritimes this summer on a, on a golf trip, and and uh, you know, just to, just to hear them talking about the CFL is exciting, but. I look at markets like Edmonton that no longer draws the crowds they used to, the Calgary Stampeders that no longer draw the crowds they used to, Saskatchewan still does well, Winnipeg does well, Toronto, you know, hosting the Eastern uh, the Eastern Final. I'm curious to see how many bodies there were they were there because they couldn't draw flies all season long. Hamilton's struggling, Ottawa um, is struggling, Montreal. They've got an ownership uh, influx. They, they don't know, you know, who's going to be taking over that team. I don't know how healthy the CFL is on an overall brand to be expanding. And you know, as as excited I am for the people in the Maritimes, I still look at the big picture of the CFL and wonder how healthy would this league be without a TSN backing it. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not sure on that. Yeah, it's it, it is still a challenge in, in a post-COVID environment uh, to see what the sort of the the the, the support's going to be over the next couple mm-hmm. of years to sort of get a sense of at least the base of where it's at and 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 where it moves forward. But I got to tell you, this weekend the excitement, the energy that uh, you could feel was just fabulous. So thanks so much, my friend. Jazz, really appreciate it, and uh, we will see what the lines do Sunday. I was looking at the forecast. The high is going to be minus 7 on the weekend, the low minus 13, and they've got snow falling Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so it could be a wild one come Sunday. Uh, it's, uh, that's the Winnipeg welcome. There you go. <laughs> All right, thanks. <laughs> thanks so much, Jay. Take care, brother. All right, let's do it again. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. season of 911 on a new night Thursday March 14th on Global stream on Stack TV